0: You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. This year, Coloradans will elect their first new governor in eight years. We're meeting the candidates ahead of primaries that for the first time are open to all voters. Today, Republican Doug Robinson. We caught up with him a few weeks ago at a campaign stop.
1: Hi there. Oh, my God. I see. How are you? Yeah, good to see
0: you. Robinson was at a coffee shop in Firestone to speak with Republican voters. It's in Weld County, which President Trump won resoundingly in 2016. Doug Robinson has never run for office before, but comes from a well-known political family. His uncle, his former Massachusetts governor and former Republican presidential nominee Mitt Romney, Robinson's grandfather, was governor of Michigan, and he says his inspiration
1: When I was a teenager, my uh, dad left our family. And uh, my grandfather kind of stepped in to provide adult male guidance in my life. And he came from nothing, was successful in business, was three-term governor of Michigan. And he believed that, you know, basically you make a success of yourself in the world and you give back.
0: Robinson, a retired investment banker, says it's now his turn to give back. At the coffee shop, he touted his business experience, then asked for questions. They ranged from abortion, which Robinson opposes, to his view of homeschooling.
1: Yeah, so uh, I believe in freedom and choice and empowering parents and kids to make the right decision. What's the right decision for, for them? And so I believe in all forms of education. Traditional schools may be best for some families. That's really where, where my kids have gone to a public uh, uh, elementary, middle, and high school. I've had four graduate from Cherry Creek High School. Uh, but that's maybe not best for every family. So we need public charter schools. We need freedom to do homeschooling. We need uh, you know, online uh, opportunities.
0: And Doug Robinson is in our studio now. Welcome to the program. Great. Thanks, Ryan. Great to be on. What's the single biggest problem facing Colorado, and how do you propose to solve it? It is roads. We have not invested in
1: our roads, and we have to fix them now. And I'm sure all of your listeners, like I am, are tired of sitting in traffic in Metro Denver. But it's not just about traffic here. It is about across the state. If you drive I-76, which I did last week, you are basically bouncing the whole way there. I was uh, driving from Uray to Montrose uh, two weeks ago and had to watch out for the washouts on the side of the road. We simply haven't invested in our infrastructure.
0: Lawmakers, even as we speak, are debating how to send more money to transportation. Uh, There are those who would like a tax increase, including the business community, for instance. There are Republicans who say, no, no tax increases. Let's do this through bonding. How would you pay for transportation? Do you think that there's a lack of funding for stuff?
1: There is a lack of funding. There is not the money in the budget, and we haven't prioritized our budget to spend on roads. It looks like we're going to have bipartisan agreement on prioritizing spending on roads, and the question is, how do you fund it? And I think the what I've heard around the state is that taxpayers want government to fund it without a tax increase. So I am in favor of a bond, similar to the bonding proposal that's in the uh, legislature right now, around $3.5 billion, and and that means about $250 million a year of debt service over 20 years to pay those bonds.
0: Isn't that a drop in the bucket if you look at the $9 billion backlog that the Colorado Department of Transportation says it has? No, it is a
1: significant down payment on improving the quality of our roads across the state. I think they may be right. $9 billion, I believe, is their estimate over the next 20 years with the number of people moving here to Colorado and the needs that we have. And $3.5 billion is a significant down payment on that challenge. You say
0: that there's not an appetite for a tax increase, and let, yet you speak to people's frustration. What makes you say... Uh, in opposition to many in the business community, that now is not the time for a tax increase. I think a tax increase is, the, the tax increase, whether it's
1: sales tax or gas tax, are regressive. They hurt those at the bottom of society. They hurt those in the rural areas if it's a gas tax that are driving more distances. I think funding our infrastructure is a fundamental role of government. We can do it without taxes. We can find the money in the general fund to pay the debt service on the bonds. And
0: what happens if the economy goes south? We still have that obligation. So it's, to, about,
1: exactly. we, it's about $250 million a year. That's on a $30 billion budget that we have. So we're talking less than 1% in terms of an annual commitment to this problem with our roads. Longer term, maybe we do need to look at some new forms of, uh, of funding. But right now, this is the right solution, I believe. You've said roads
0: a lot. What role would transit or alternative transportation play if you become governor? Those are important, too. We absolutely have to support
1: uh, RTD and the and the uh, projects that they're doing. Uh, we need to get the lines built, the one that's going up to through Arvada, where they have people sitting at the stops because of federal regulation when they haven't even built it. Uh, there's no I mean, they built it, but there's no trains going on it be, to, to comply. So absolutely, all forms of, of transportation are important.
0: You co-founded an investment bank in Denver that raised money principally for technology companies. You later sold it to a global firm You're also founder of the nonprofit Kids Tech, whose goal is to make sure that high-need students have access to technology and technology literacy. And you've said that you're uniquely qualified to help the state prepare for the jobs of the future in areas like robotics, artificial intelligence, virtual reality. As governor, what would you do specifically? Talk to me about aligning education with what you see as the jobs of the future. Those jobs are coming. I saw as I walked in that this is
1: the Rut Bridges building and he is a leader in talking about autonomous vehicles
0: and how that's going to transform. You probably had him on your show. Uh, This is someone who made the building we are sitting in possible uh, and has talked a lot about autonomous vehicles, for instance. Right.
1: So that's part of we are going to see technology change every aspect of our lives. We have an opportunity to be a real leader. And it is through bringing bringing our businesses more engaged with our high schools and our universities to really have internships, have uh, those sorts of opportunities to bring kids into those businesses so they're prepared
0: for those jobs. So you'd like a stronger alliance between business and public education? Yes, I would. Talk to me about these teacher walkouts lately. Do you support them?
1: I think teachers have a right to do that, absolutely. I know some in my party have said they should, uh, they should not have that right. They do. They have the right to express their views, and I support and am sensitive to their concerns. I have a son who's 25 years old now. Last year he was 24. He was teaching in Denver. Guess where he was living? In my home, because he couldn't afford uh, rent in an apartment, and now he's moved out. But it is a
0: concern. Should the state be spending more money on education? We can say for sure that it's not spending what it's constitutionally committed to under Amendment 23. Yes, we
1: need to spend more on education. We, have to, we need to pay down that negative factor. I don't support a huge tax increase. I think we can be more efficient and get in our schools the way we manage our schools to get more money to the teachers. But we have to spend more on public education. You, yes. don't,
0: you don't support a huge tax increase or you don't support any tax increase? I don't import, support a tax increase now. Okay. You know, there are those in government uh, now, perhaps on both sides of the aisle, who say you're expecting a lot of efficiency out of a government that is uh, restricted by measures like TABOR, the Taxpayer Bill of Rights. If there was so much money to find already, don't you think Republicans in the legislature might have found it or the governor might have found it already?
1: I recall last year the the uh, uh, House members came up with about four or five hundred million dollars of suggested savings in government. So I think there is some efficiencies. Uh, unlike some of my Republican opponents, I don't think there's billions of dollars mm. of efficiencies in the budget. But just one percent on a thirty billion dollar budget—that's three hundred million dollars. I believe we can find some of those efficiencies to uh, yes, invest more in our education. And in our roads, I, I want to
0: talk about Tabor uh, specifically because there are candidates on the Democratic side of this race who would like some changes to the taxpayer bill of rights. It does seem like you'd be open to room for compromise. I mean, because you've said in the past, uh, for instance, that you would have signed a bill that took a fee out from under Tabor and freed up money for roads and schools. This was kind of clunkily referred to as the hospital provider fee. I don't want to get into the nitty gritty, but do you think there's room for compromise on Tabor restrictions or would you like to see Tabor stay as is?
1: I think there's room for discussion about all issues, and uh, yes, I, what I'm committed to about TABOR is the is spending cap and the requirement that we have transparency in government, meaning that we have to go to the voters to get tax increases approved. Well, that's the Those meat of TABOR. Are the fundamental things that I am uh, committed to protecting, yes.
0: Okay. So it sounds like you wouldn't support any major changes to TABOR. Yes. Okay. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're continuing our conversations with the men and women who want to be Colorado's next governor. Right now, that's Republican Doug Robinson. As we said earlier, you are related to former Massachusetts governor and 2012 presidential uh, nominee for the Republicans, Mitt Romney. He is scheduled to campaign for you in Colorado this month. But I bring him up in a different context, and that's health care. So as governor of Massachusetts, Romney led the rollout of what was essentially Obamacare before Obamacare it was dubbed Romney care required people to buy health insurance that state expanded medicaid to cover the poor uh, these are all things republicans have largely fought where do you differ from Mitt Romney on health care who i believe is is one of your largest donors yes i'm grateful for that <laughs>
1: <laughs> and he is coming uh, to, to support my race. So I think each state, this is an issue that I don't think the federal government has done a, a good job on solving. They've tried to solve it for 50 years. They haven't been able to do it. He came up with a plan for Massachusetts that I think is working for Massachusetts. We need a plan for Colorado. And it does include supporting Medicaid, but trying to, we should celebrate people coming off Medicaid when they have better jobs and better opportunities. But I think there's some changes we can make. I would look at managed care as a solution in uh, Medicaid spending. Uh, Over 20 other states have adopted that. I think there's some things we can do. This bill that was not passed last week out of committee around price transparency, I think that's a step in the right direction. There's a lot we can do in Colorado to reduce our health care costs. Do you think that there should be the individual mandate, the requirement to buy health insurance in Colorado? I do not support that. I think people uh, make their own decisions. We, We provide access
0: and care and opportunity, but I don't support the individual mandate. Okay, so that uh, separates you from Romney Care in Massachusetts, for instance. Yes. On, on Medicaid, would you roll back the expansion of Medicaid under Obamacare?
1: Really hard to roll things back, right? What we need to do is provide, change the incentive. So I would look at things, as I said, like managed care. I would look at maybe increasing the co-pays or doing what Indiana did. They now charge a small premium to their Medicaid uh, folks every month. It's from 8 to $18 a month. And it makes a difference in terms of how those people consume health care. Should there be a work requirement for those in Medicaid? Yes, a work or uh, not for those that are, um, you know, elderly or, or or kids or disabled, but those that are able, able-bodied, they should
0: be looking for work or working or volunteering. Yes, I believe that's fair to ask them. I want to ask that question with the context that there are many on Medicaid in Colorado who are working.
1: The Most working of them. Poor.
0: Working two and three jobs, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is a
1: challenge in that we have a 2.9% unemployment rate, yet we have almost one in four Coloradans on Medicaid. I've met with many of them. They're working two and three jobs just to try to make it. So we need to have economic leadership to bring back to the technology jobs, higher-paying jobs, opportunities for them to lift themselves off of Medicaid.
0: Does it make sense to have states individually tackling health care which is usually a market that benefits from economies of scale.
1: It does, because the federal government has not shown that they can solve it. And I don't have any confidence in their ability to do it going forward. Just the political pressures are too great. The power of the pharma and hospital and other lobbies are really
0: uh, hard to overcome. A poll conducted in January revealed that immigration is the top issue for Republicans in Colorado. You and the other Republican candidates in this race have spoken out against sanctuary cities, for instance. But I want to ask you about the coming census. The Trump administration wants to ask about people's citizenship. Colorado's governor, uh, it was revealed yesterday, is suing to stop that for fear that it uh, may lead people to avoid census. Uh, filling it out. Do you think the census should ask about citizenship? I do.
1: I think we have to have an accurate picture of what's going on in our country. And I'm sensitive to that concern, though, about people you know, not participating. We need to make sure that there's no you know, penalty or, or impact for them doing. We want to encourage everybody to participate. But we need to know who's legal and who's not in this country. And how
0: do you think you achieve both goals, that is, to get a full picture of the country And count as many people as thoroughly as possible and yet ask about citizenship, which certainly under this administration is a loaded question these days.
1: Yeah, it's loaded because they're concerned that they're going to get deported. And I think we need to make clear that uh, in Colorado, at least, uh, we're not rounding up uh, illegals and shipping them back. I do believe that sanctuary cities are not the right approach and that those people that have committed jailable offenses should be turned over to ICE. And that should be made clear throughout our immigrant communities that we welcome them. We want them to have a future and a part in our society, but they need to become citizens. And if they've committed laws and uh, broken laws and they're not citizens, then Uh, they need to be uh, handed over to our federal immigration
0: authorities. What's the lowest level offense? You think there should be that kind of state-federal cooperation or (laughs) local federal cooperation? I don't know
1: exactly, but maybe a a DUI or something like that. I was asked
0: about that on 9 News, and I think that makes sense. To guns for a moment, and a proposal that's often called the Red Flag Warning, it would allow judges to take guns from people who are believed to be a danger to themselves or others— Uh, at least temporarily. You said at a debate in March that you favor this idea, and a bill to accomplish this was introduced at the legislature uh, with bipartisan support. Uh, A few hours later, though, there was some talk about Republicans removing a key leader in their party who had supported this idea. Uh, Feelings seem to run strong among Republicans about this. What, what, What do you think of this red flag bill and where it puts you? among other Republicans. You know, I'm supportive of it. Um, I believe that
1: uh, looking at look at law enforcement, I tend to I have worked a lot with law enforcement over the last few years on legislation that has been passed around drug policy. And I know these guys. I know the uh, sheriff of Douglas County and he's for it. George Brockler is for it. I tend to be for it. But you have to George Buckler, District Attorney. You can't take away people's constitutional rights, and uh, and that's where you have to have the due process in this. We have to ensure, and I need to to make sure that these red flag laws do not restrict, uh, you know, arbitrarily take away people's rights. That there is due process because we do have a constitutional right to carry arms to the uh, Second Amendment, and I'm supportive
0: of that. Let's move on to marijuana, which actually is a big issue for you. You are a key player in a group called Smart Colorado, whose mission is to protect youth from marijuana. You say many adults with medical marijuana cards are really just recreational users who like paying the lower taxes on medical pot. And so you would require those cards to be given out by a doctor that the patient has an existing relationship with. Uh, And so with more people, presumably in that plan, Uh, paying recreational taxes, you'd spend more on educating kids about the dangers of pot. Help us understand, how would you move more people to the recreational marijuana market if if they uh, presumably have a relationship with a doctor right now, give them a card? Right now they
1: have an annual requirement to have a uh, card that's an annual card and uh so i wouldn't make any force anybody i would just say listen the dispensaries cannot have these relationships with the pot doctors who are mostly prescribing pot we if you have a, norm, a regular doctor who is uh you've had a relationship for a while um and he says this is the right thing for you i think colorado we could be a leader there is uh you know Beginning to be real proof that CBD is effective in helping uh, on a lot of diseases. We should be a leader. We should be promoting that. But we should take those people that are using high THC marijuana in the recreational, I mean, in the medical side, put them in the recreational side. Let's get those tax revenues.
0: How would you
1: establish whether someone has a relationship that's valid or not? We need to bring our physicians together and really figure out what's the right plan to be able to do that. And and um, uh, sure, there's going to be some little bit of gray area there. But I think uh, uh, you know a large number of people have gone to these dispensary-tied doctors and paid 100 or $200 for a red card for back pain. I think they should be paying the recreational taxes.
0: We have less than a minute. I want to point out that Colorado has had only one Republican governor in the last four decades, Bill Owens, from 99 to 2007. This is a state that Hillary Clinton won in 2016. President Trump's approval rating is at about 41 percent. What makes you think this year could be different for a Republican? It's
1: going to be a tough uh, lift for any Republican. I think I have the best chance. I am a pragmatic sol- problem solver. I am you know, I I stepped in to solve issues on difficult, had the courage to come in on difficult I- ideas and solve uh, these problems. So I think I have a real chance if I win the nomination, which I expect to. And in, in June, I need
0: your support. I need you to go to DougForColorado.com. Uh, spoken like someone running for office, Doug Robinson. Thank you for being with us. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's Republican Doug Robinson running for governor. We are interviewing all the major party candidates before the June 26th primaries. And next week, we're scheduled to speak with Democrat Donna Lynn and Republican Greg Lopez. When he looks around at schools, politics, even language in this country, Tink Tinker sees that white Christian colonialism is alive and well. Tinker is a member of the Osage Nation and spent his career at Denver's Iliff School of Theology, teaching people about indigenous cultures. He recently retired, and Iliff has launched a program to continue Tinker's work. And Tink, thanks for being with us.
2: It's my pleasure to be here, Ryan.
0: As recently as the mid-1970s, Iliff itself had a book on display. And it was a gruesome example of how colonialism uh, was still evident. I do want to warn listeners that uh, this story may be hard to hear. Tell us, tell us about this book.
2: Well, in 1985, I just arrived at Iliff. One colleague out of 20 pulled me aside and said, Tink, you need to know about this. But 11 years ago, Iliff got rid of an artifact that uh, was rather horrific, and it's been a secret ever since. Uh, And he told me that there was a book on display for 80 years outside the Iliff Library covered in the skin of an American Indian an Indian man had been killed back east. Uh, his skin had been flayed and tanned and turned into a number of trinkets, including the cover for this book of Christian history. I was stunned. If I would known about this before I took the job, I might not have taken the job hmm. because this is such an offense to Indian people. Uh, but I sat on the Secret for a while. I did go around to other colleagues and none of them knew anything about it, ostensibly, because he had been sworn to secrecy by the president uh, 10 years before. Really? There had uh, been a
0: pact not to talk
2: about it. Oh, yes. Uh, wh- when when the president of the school handed the cover, which was separated from the book, the book is still in the Isle of, uh, Library, buried Indeed. somewhere, uh, no longer on public display, uh, he ple- he asked the American Indian movement to pledge themselves to secrecy about the transaction. They took the cover, took it up north to a medicine man, who uh, took care of it in a respectful way, interred it. Uh, and the American Indian movement people told Iliff, if anybody learns about this, it will be from your side, not from ours. Their concern was to take care of an ancestor, not to get publicity out of the event. Mm. After 30 years, I decided, I'm a member of the American Indian Movement, and I shouldn't blow the lid off of this, but I'm also Iliff School of Theology, so I can do it. So I I wrote the essay that, that, that exposed it and talked about why so many Indians refused to come into Iliff.
0: And it was because of that history. Yes. So as you say, the, the, the skin was repatriated. The book remains in ILIF's archives. Uh, you indeed started teaching at ILIF in the mid-'80s. And I, I want to talk a, a little bit about the Indian understanding of life, because that is a view you have tried to bring throughout your career to students at ILIF. The Indian understanding of life, of the world, I think is very different from the white Christian understanding. In fact, ILIF offers a course called Indigenous Knowledges and Western Science, which, which you've taught. Could, could you give us an example of the contrast between these ideas that you try to point out to
2: students? Sure. Um, for, first of all, Indian cultures are spatial cultures, not temporal. And the Euro-Christian world is predominantly temporal. Are you saying spatial versus temporal? Yes, tell me what that means uh for us, where something happens is more important more important than when it happens, so that we didn't invent the seven day week uh, we didn't invent the sabbath but, but but rather for us, ceremonies happen certain times of year depending upon season and the uh, uh spatial arrangement between the sun and the moon and the earth. Um, And then our ceremonies—and I tell my students that I love this—if you can't do it in 59 minutes and 59 seconds, the bishop is going to have you out on the Kansas state line. (laughs) For us, a ceremony might last four days or 12 days. In other words time isn't an ingredient in terms of efficiency, it just is the necessity for taking care of the whole of a ceremony. So we're spatial. Do you think that that leads to
0: tensions beyond faith, for instance? Might that inform government? Might that inform health? Does that connect to the issues that, that... Indian people struggle with today. The
2: other major difference is that, that the Euro-Christian world is hierarchical. <clears throat> Everything is up down in the, in terms of the metaphoric image of life. So you have a president, Congress, and the people. You have a governor and legislature and the people. You have a a, a priest and the lay people. A bishop and the priest. You have father, mother, children. And in the old scheme, of course, men ranked above women, right, uh, until women started pushing back, uh, you know, in the last century uh, rather steadily. Uh, our our world is more, I call it a collateral egalitarian uh, metaphoric schema where everybody's on the same plane. And people say, yeah, but you had chiefs. Hmm. Well, we did better than that. We had two in every village. One spatially aligned with the north or the sky people. The other spatially aligned with the earth, the the, the, the earth people in the south. And they took turns every other day being in charge, kind of like having... Donald Trump on Mondays and Hillary Clinton on Tuesdays.
0: (laughs) Collateral, you say.
2: Egalitarian. Yes. In other words, neither one had all that much authority. It was very discreetly bounded so that authority was actually distributed throughout the whole village.
0: I want to connect this to your work with Denver's Four Winds American Indian Survival Project, which tackles... Particularly urban issues for American Indians, homelessness among them. Uh, when you look at <clears throat> government or business, uh, what do you think could change to address inequalities that Indian people face? And and you know perhaps connect that to these different views of power structures and solving problems.
2: These are all complex questions. Yes, I re- <laughs> we could I mean, go on for. I, I hours. could teach a ten week course on each of these questions. Right, and here we are in a show that's
0: timed to 59 minutes and 59 seconds. That's right. Right.
2: (laughs) Let let, let me say that that one of the key issues, again, is space. Uh, We we have a number of Indian organizations in Denver, agencies, the Indian Center, Denver Indian Health, um, Four Winds was one of those. None of them is very well-funded, we're, as a result of 500 years of colonialism, we're rooted at, at the at the lowest rung, socioeconomic rung, of this continent. Uh, we're poor. In fact, the national unemployment rate uh, has been somewhere near uh, 60% for American Indians. 60%? On some reservations, Ah. chronically 85 and 90 percent. Pine Ridge is at 85 and 90 percent, six hours away. Rosebud, seven hours away, same story. So that uh, what we need is some sort of economic base that will enable us to both be Indian and maintain our culture, and at the same time, give us the resources to thrive.
0: Some of the nations that have thrived have done so on gambling, have done so on oil and gas exploration, for That's instance. Right. Are are those the kinds of streams you're talking about?
2: Not necessarily. Hmm. Uh, oil and gas isn't sustainable. My nation is figuring that out because uh, we're, we're an oil and gas producing nation, one of the first uh, on the continent, um, and it's getting harder and harder to get the oil up to the surface because it's deeper and deeper in the ground. So eventually it is used up or becomes so ecologically damaging to access that we've got to ask ourselves whether it's ethically and morally right to do so. Uh, gambling is going to be short-lived because uh, your Christian peoples are going to say, "We can't let Indians have all the fun," and so more and more states are opening up uh, their own casinos. Uh, you say
0: your Christian <coughs> your Christian people. You say I want to be clear that I. I don't discuss my own faith on the radio, so I don't, I don't, I'm sorry. Don't That's okay. I use
2: Euro Christian as a, uh, oh, a sociological
0: Euro Christian. I thought you said your Christian. Oh okay. no, no,
2: Euro Christian. Well, it's important. It's a sociological designation. <laughs> yes, indeed, it has nothing to do with whether <laughs> with you belong your... to a church or not.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're speaking with Tink Tinker, who just uh, retired from his post as professor of Denver's Isle of School of Theology. Uh, they have launched a program to continue his work teaching about indigenous cultures. Uh, Maybe we can wrap up by going back to where we started and the notion of this book that had been wrapped in the skin of an American Indian, of an indigenous person.
2: The book remained throughout your career there. Well, it was on display at the school for 80 years. Uh, And my question is, how can a Christian school, uh, a self-avowed practicing, professing Christian school, United Methodist, uh, keep a book like that on display as a trophy. And that book was taken off display, but how did
0: you come to peace with your presence at ILIF? How did you say, I'm going to be a part of this institution that made such a poor decision in your mind?
2: Well, as soon as I knew, this was back before there were these fancy smoke detectors everywhere in the building. Uh-huh. Uh Back in 1985, I did take one of our medicines uh, lit it, burned it, created smoke. And I took that smoke through every part of the building that I could reach uh, in order to purify it, especially my office. I did that regularly, even though there was a smoke detector. I found ways of of, of smudging my office, uh, you know, just purifying it so that I could be there. And so that I could be there in order to press Iluf to be more accountable. And in fact, over 30 years, I finally have a president who is much more accountable and is willing to be much more transparent about this. And in fact, president he knows, at ILIF. He knows I'm on your – yeah, president of Iluf. sorry. Yes, mm-hmm. uh, he knows I'm on your program this morning.
0: Uh, thanks for being with us. I, I think you're right. We could we could keep going, but we've run out of time. How temporal of us! <laughs> Thank you. Good to be with you. Tink Tinker recently retired, as we said, from his post at his professor at Denver's Isle of School of Theology, where they have launched a program to continue his work teaching about indigenous cultures. Two longtime dance teachers at the prestigious Denver School of the Arts resigned earlier this year after a five-month investigation into charges they created an abusive environment. The school has also investigated complaints from students in its vocal program. CPR News has talked with current and former students, parents, and faculty about complaints dating back more than a decade The dance teachers say their ouster is part of a larger agenda to dismantle a distinctive, locally grown dance program. Here's CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine.
3: Clarity McKay loved to dance. She started at five years old. She graduated as a dance major from the Denver School of the Arts in 2006, 12 years ago. Then she never danced again.
4: Honestly, I've blocked out so much of that time because I think it was... Because it was really painful up until five years ago, I think, is when I finally stopped having nightmares about Michael.
3: Michael O'Banion was her dance teacher at DSA, along with Alicia Karczewski. The Denver School of the Arts is a public 6th through 12th grade magnet school where children must survive competitive auditions to get in. The School of 1100 is prized for its artistic and academic performance. Students speak highly of the academic teachers, but they say the dance department could be a scary environment. Some students in this story are anonymous, and their voices are distorted because they fear retribution. I
5: wanted to just survive and get out of there.
3: And another dancer
5: for me... It really was constant abuse.:
3: A former teacher and student say there were complaints of abusive behavior as far back as 2005, but it wasn't until last June that formal letters of complaint from four families triggered an investigation. They accused the teachers of creating an intimidating, hostile, threatening and abusive educational environment. The investigation resulted in the resignation of dance teachers Obanian and Karchevsky. Karchevsky's reaction:: I think I was shocked. It was humiliating, it was degrading as a as a person that cares so much about what I do. Principal William Cohut, who became the school's leader in 2009, declined an interview request from CPR. Denver Public Schools rejected a request from CPR News for the final investigative report. Multiple sources say dozens of complaints were made over the past decade. However, Superintendent Tom Boesberg says he only became aware of them earlier this school year. He trusts Cohut acted appropriately.
1: We have looked at it very closely uh, and believe Mr. Cohut, as principal, did look into concerns that were raised with him. He did share concerns that were raised with folks at the district level and, and folks at the district level also looked into those concerns.
3: The teachers resigned earlier this year, and there was no further information for families until two days after CPR interviewed the superintendent. That's when a letter went out to art school families acknowledging numerous complaints and the investigations. The letter confirmed families were not comfortable sharing their concerns, fearing retaliation. The school said behavior that jeopardizes student health is prohibited, and it outlined steps going forward. For the past two months, we interviewed more than 20 students, parents, teachers and staff to understand what led to the investigation. Michael O'Banion took over the dance program in 1993, setting high standards and strict rules. Former student Clarity McKay, who was not one of the complainants, says
4: he was a very, very intense person.
3: She recalls an incident the first time they got to wear serious stage makeup during a performance like this one from a video in 2006. McKay says O'Banion approached an African-American dancer. He
4: kept screaming that she, her face was washed out and she needed more makeup and more makeup. She was really upset and,
3: and crying off stage. The recent allegations describe a tightly controlled environment where kids were often berated, belittled, and shamed.
5: There were days when I had panic attacks, Before going into class, because I was so scared.
3: This graduate says some of the shaming was done in public.
5: In front of everyone, Mr. O kind of screamed at her, Stop crying. You don't need to be crying right now. I can't believe you're such a baby. Are you really crying?
3: Another dancer says during such incidents, staying quiet was key.
5: Not speaking up is one of the most basic survival tactics you learn when you're little there.
3: The dancer remembers a day when a student fainted in class. O'Banion told them to keep dancing.
5: Which was just flabbergasting. There were moments where you almost want to laugh at how ridiculous it was. That, that was the expectation for us to dance around a collapsed person's body.
3: Michael O'Banion says if a crying or injured student was getting a whole group of students off task.
6: My goal was to help them see that you move through that. And move on to the joy again. But if you say, okay, let's all stop and focus on this moment of sadness for this one child. Let's all participate in it. Let's have a group grieving. Then what have I taught? I've taught them to stay stuck in that and that you can get attention through negative means.
3: O'Banion and Karchevsky both say the investigation masks a larger political agenda to get rid of them and their program that emphasized creativity and student choreography, not simply dance technique. Students at the school are bitterly divided about the teachers. This senior is afraid of reprisal because she's critical of how administrators handled the resignations. She says this about Karchevsky.
5: Miss Kay is one of the nicest people you'll ever meet, but she's also very hard on you and she's very tough, but it's in a loving way because she knows that you have so much potential and she just wants to unlock
3: it for you. At the same time, the student understands how their peers could have panic attacks regarding some of O'Banion's behavior. Even students who filed complaints say the dance environment was complex. One says the teacher shaped her love for choreography. Senior Sebastian Medina says the teachers taught him creativity. I think they had their moments, but I would definitely say that they they definitely cared about their students. But did they pick on students?
4: Definitely.
3: Medina says students often nominated him to ask the teachers questions because they were too scared. But he sometimes did feel belittled and dumb. He almost quit.
4: Lots of talking down to you. The worst part about it is they would both
5: do it and they would have the little wink signal to each other.
3: Felt, he says, like bullying. Some of the students' complaints involve physical duress, five-hour dance rehearsals, sometimes with no break or food. Students say the teachers routinely went through their backpacks and threw out food. A doctor's note for an injury got a short excuse, but students say never for the duration of the injury. This former student injured her ankle.
5: They made me dance in the boot. They made me work my foot that wasn't in the boot, like kicking, spinning, all that stuff, which was extremely difficult. One side will overcompensate, which can throw off how the injury is healing.
3: Other students say they got to sit out when needed. O'Banion says he was conservative about injuries and would wait until dancers were both emotionally and physically ready to go back, and until the nurse gave the okay. But he adds,
6: There are injured dancers, injured athletes performing all the time, but they learn how to compensate. They learn how to work through it. Now, I would never ask a child who's injured on a doctor's note to defy the doctor's note. But I've never had a doctor's note that says, this child must sit immobile for the whole day. This child is not allowed to physically move. If they're that hurt, they shouldn't be at school.
3: Complaints alleging abusive treatment are not new. 2006 graduate Clarity McKay was a volunteer assistant to a dean. She says school administrators were familiar with the atmosphere in the dance department. We
4: talked to principals about it. There were lots of complaints filed against them when I was there, but none of them were ever, it didn't seem like anything was ever acted upon.
3: Asked why there was no investigation earlier, Superintendent Tom Bosberg responded,
1: In the last 10 years, the concerns that were raised did not rise to that level until concerns that were raised beginning earlier in this school year.
3: When students started classes in August, they were told the teachers were on administrative leave, gone. Some students say they were pleased, but other seniors say they were devastated and that the school offered no counseling or a place for students to process the news.
5: I've never experienced like such a disconnect in my life. We were all under a cloud of depression, basically, because, like, such a major thing had happened and we had no control over it.
3: Seniors dedicated this year's dance program to Alicia Karchevsky and Michael O'Banion.
6: There was a time where my methodology was revered because it was effective. But the culture's changed. Parenting has changed. Students have changed.
3: O'Banion partially blames some student and parent misunderstanding of him on parents and a culture where children are treated like precious cargo.
6: The fact that no one was neutral about my teaching style, my personality, my way of delivering the education to these students is a success in itself.
3: Several students say they lost their passion for dance at the Denver School of the Arts. This dancer says the teachers were responsible.
5: I just think that they are very, very, very distanced from reality. You have to have so much denial in yourself to live with yourself after doing that to kids. You can't be self-aware and emotionally present and do that. Like, it would wreck you.
3: Clarity McKay, who spent much of her childhood training as a dancer and then years at DSA as a student, was relieved when she heard the teachers were gone and shocked they'd been there so long.
4: I think that somewhere he had the right intentions to, like, push us to be these expressive artists and these incredible dancers. But I think that he lost sight of the the truth that we were you know, 12 years old.
3: Michael O'Banion plans to continue working in the arts and perhaps teach at a private school. Alicia Karchevsky also hopes to keep teaching. The letter sent recently to DSA families about the investigation says teachers have been retrained on mandatory child abuse reporting, as well as other professional training on appropriate practices. I'm Jenny Brandeen, Colorado Public Radio News.
0: When the state legislature sends a bill to the governor, and they're doing that a lot right now because it's the end of session, the governor has options, and more than you might think. He can sign the legislation. Of course, he can veto it, which is usually big news. And he has a third choice, not to sign it, just to let it become law. Governor John Hickenlooper has used that last option a couple of times recently. I asked him last week how he made that call on one bill in particular. Lawmakers approved a bill to allow community colleges to offer four-year nursing degrees. You let that become law without your signature, and in a letter to the legislature, you criticized the bill, saying it demonstrates mission creep by community colleges. could lead to duplicative programs offered already by four-year colleges.
7: Uh, if you thought the bill was wrong, why let it become law? In the end, I don't think it hurts Colorado, and we have such a shortage of nurses right now that I'm willing to examine almost anything to try and increase the throughput of trained nurses. That being said, that should have gone through higher education. The Department of Higher Education is where we sift through the pros and cons on a large basis and have much more expertise, right? What happens is when you... Are you saying lawmakers just didn't consult the Colorado Department of Higher Education? To a large extent. I think that was what the implication was that it was being done at the behest of the community colleges and, and did not go through the normal processes of of review by the department of higher education. How do you feel about that third option? This well, idea that you can, uh, it's obviously I'm not going to let a bill through if I think it's bad for the state of Colorado, but there are from time to time bills where usually where there, there's a, a narrow self-interest, right? Uh, and there's a group of lobbyists that have been persuasive with the general assembly that this is something the state has to have. And this is something that the state you know really needs. And we don't, we shouldn't look at the way we used to do these things. And in the end, if it's bad for the state, I'll veto it. If it's something that I feel is, the, you know, the lobbyists or that there's a, a usurpation of the rightful decision-making process, then sometimes I'll just make a statement but, by by letting it become a, a law without signing it. I'm basically saying I don't approve of certain parts of this, or I don't like the, you know, the way in which it was created. This bill doesn't really reflect what I think the best process is, but It's okay, and I'm going to go ahead and sign it.
0: That is a peek into the process of making laws in Colorado from Democratic Governor John Hickenlooper. And that's Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for spending time with us. And special thanks to Michelle Fulcher. This is CPR News.